The bad guys are kicking the shit out of the good guys. Look at what just happened. This shit is in shambles right now. The space has this attack vector from intelligent sociopaths, and they've done so much damage at this point. Hello there from Austin in Texas. I'm about to fly home. This sprint is finished. It's been a really busy time. We've been to Nashville to make shows. We've been to Austin to make shows. And then we've been all over Texas and Oklahoma making this film, this third part of my series, Follow the Money. I just want to say a big thanks to everyone who's helped with everything. It's been a busy trip. We've got a lot done, but I'm really proud of the work we've done. Also, you know what? A big shout out to my team, to Danny, Jeremy, Neil, Emma, Ben, everyone who works on this because they work so hard to help us produce all this great content. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got got quite a tough interview, actually. I've got my friend, Travis Kling, on the show. Now, Travis runs a fund called Ikigai, and they were caught up in the FTX situation. Their fund held a large majority of their assets on FTX when they paused withdrawals. And it's caused a lot of problems for Travis. It's caused a lot of problems for the fund. And Travis being a friend, you know, it's a lot to see him go through. I've been a friend of Travis now for, I don't know, four years. I've known him since pretty much not long after I started the podcast. I met him in LA. We've hung out a bunch of times. I've really got to know him. So to see somebody go through this really sucks. But it's a difficult story. It's something I wanted to hear about directly from somebody who was affected. So I said, look, Travis, will you come on the show? Can we talk about this? And he agreed. There were no questions off the table. He said, ask whatever you want. And tough, tough to see him go through it, but tough to also ask him, you know, what mistakes have you made with this, Travis, and how he's reflecting on this. So look, I appreciate Travis coming on to talk about this. And if you do have any questions about this, if you want to reach out to me, you can do. Uh, we'll get back to you as soon as possible. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Travis, how you doing, man? Uh, not great, but not terrible, all things considering. Uh, so a lot has blown up in the last year. And when the FTX thing happened... Uh, I saw your tweet thread, and, and we wanted to talk to somebody affected by this. We want to talk to somebody uh, as a retail customer, but also somebody who may be on the business side. Uh, and it was particularly hard to read your thread because you're actually a friend. I mean, you're one of my oldest friends in this industry. I've known you since God, very early. I can't even remember, but probably, what, four years? Maybe even close to five. It would be late 18 or early 19. I think it was late 80. Yeah. I hadn't been doing the pod for long. And so we've hung out a, a whole bunch of times in LA. You've been on the podcast a few times. And so when all that stuff happened, I, you know, I was reading it all and thinking, this is sucks. And then when I read yours, it like fucking hits hard because you're a friend. And I was like, shit. Uh, so thank you for coming on talking about it because I think it's important for somebody to hear this. Yeah. Happy to. Uh, yeah, this is the first time I've done done a podcast since all this stuff happened. So yeah, ha- happy to talk about it. I don't don't really think there's too much anything that I can or don't want to talk about. So, uh, been worried about you as a friend, hoping you're okay. I mean, I saw you. I I met you when you first started, Icky Guy. So like, I've seen you grow that uh, that operation and grow your team. So I've been worried about you as a friend, but you know, here we are. Can I think the starting point for it is to ask you firstly to walk me through 
the day when you realized that your funds on FTX were gone. Talk me through that day. Yeah. Yeah, it's not it's not that I would have put the counterparty risk of FTX at zero. I never would have done that. But the speed at which the collapse occurred, that I think I never could have imagined. Because the the Coinbase article with the Alameda balance sheet came out Wednesday afternoon. And I woke up Monday morning and saw some of the news flow and was like, oh, it's, we, we need to move assets off there. And you couldn't get them off Monday morning. So that was the speed at which, you know, richest guy in the world under the age of 30, they'd raised it a $32 billion valuation from BlackRock, a bunch of marquee names. You know, that was how quickly all that came down. And I saw the news flow, you know, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, saw it. And... Um, didn't dismiss it and was in telegram chats, um, with guys that were much closer to Alameda and FTX than I was. And it is worth mentioning that I've, I've never talked to Sam one-on-one -on -one. don't, ha don't have a relationship with him. Uh, I've never met him, um, knew some other folks that had worked at FTX in the past, um, but didn't have a relationship with Sam and didn't know anything about, you know, Gary or, or Caroline or Trabuco, or, you know, didn't have, didn't know anything about these guys, but I had close personal relationships with guys that did have close relationships with, with them and with those organizations and had done a lot of business with them. And these guys, um, you know, were sort of saying that the, there wasn't anything to worry about, that the, the Alameda balance sheet snapshot was, a, was an inaccurate representation of that organization's financial position. Um, and then the, when the CZ stuff started popping off, well, like, you know, they had been in a pissing match for, I don't know, like 18 months before that on and off. So I just kind of dismissed that as like this, you know, crypto Twitter pissing match kind of thing. And, um, you know, and then it all just came, you know, really quickly. And so, you know, Monday morning, um, you know, went to withdraw a, you know, a lot of assets and got, you know, almost nothing off before they gated withdrawals. And then by Monday night, they had, they had gated withdrawals entirely, you know, and by then, you know, it was looking like there was a pretty big problem and that obviously developed over, you know, kind of Tuesday. And then there was the, CZ's going to bail out FTX thing that lasted for 36 hours or something like that. And, you know, I think they filed for bankruptcy that Friday. So, so the Friday was, uh, I guess you went through the week with a little bit of hope. Something will be, something will come out of this. And then Friday's like, fuck, this is gone. Yeah. Not a lot of hope, a lot of dread. Okay. Yeah. Just a lot of, uh, yeah. I mean, when all that was happening, I mean, there's, a, there, we use Slack for our internal messaging and there's, there's like a, you know, there's a message from me, like, you know, Monday at noon where I'm like, yeah, worst case scenario here, this is ball game for us. Okay. And, um, if you'd have, uh, you read the article on the Wednesday, do you know if you'd have attempted to make withdrawals then you would have had any chance? Yeah. You would have. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's going to remain to be seen in the bankruptcy process of what's going to happen potentially with some of those withdrawals getting clawed back. There's a lot of uncertainty there, but yeah, withdrawals were open. I think the the quote, at least from Sam, and you know, I don't know how much to, to trust him, but I think he said they processed six billion of withdrawals in the seventy two hours prior to them closing withdrawals. So you know, a lot of money came off the exchange. And so that Friday hits. Uh, 
what is the reality of what that means for you and Nikki Guy at that moment? Have you shared what you lost in it and can you share what you lost? Um, it was the large majority of the funds assets. Okay. Yeah. Um, of the hedge funds assets. Uh, and I had, you know, a very big chunk of my liquid net worth invested in the fund. Okay. Um, well, you know, alongside all of our other investors. Um, so we've got just a very small amount of, of assets, you know, left over that aren't stuck in FTX that we, you know, that we still have available, um, was in constant communication with all of our investors. You know, I think we sent out an email like Tuesday night, Wednesday night, did a two and a half hour zoom Thursday morning, sent out another email Friday afternoon of that first week. The cadence slowed down, you know, a little bit over the following few weeks, but still in, you know, very consistent communication is, you know, more stuff become, became available. You know, I think maybe a week or 10 days after the bankruptcy was filed, we hired bankruptcy counsel because I've never dealt with a bankruptcy before to try and just help us, you know, make the best decisions possible through that process. Um, we were the, we were the 18th largest creditor. And so they sent out, there's a creditors committee that gets formed in the bankruptcy process. They send out an, an application to the top 50 creditors that if you want to be on this creditors committee, you know, you fill out this application, um, they do an interview with you. They did an interview. We ended up not getting selected. Uh, but you know, there was a, there was a potential in there for a couple of weeks where it was like, you know, we could be on this creditors committee and be, you know, very much involved in this bankruptcy process. And then I think it was the second week of December where they picked that creditors committee. We weren't on it. And then it was like, okay, now there's basically nothing you can do uh, in terms of like affecting the outcome. You're just in wait and see mode. You can sell your claim. There's a claims market for FTX accounts. What, what are they paying on the dollar? Uh, before two days ago, it was about 13 cents. Okay. Um, there was that headline that came out yesterday or yesterday, two, two days ago. The 5 billion funds. Yeah, that 5 billion number. And that 5 billion number was, you know, I would say billions of dollars higher than what people were thinking for that number. So I think that claims market, you know, it's probably gone just completely. It's probably entirely on pause right now. Um, while people sort out like where did this five billion dollar number come from that everybody's so surprised at but i think that 13 cents number from and i've talked to a lot of claims buyers um you know i think that translates to an expected recovery value base case safe recovery value of 25 to 30 cents mm -hmm. with upside you know, beyond that multiple sort of avenues of upside to that. And with this new information, you know, I think that would probably double that number, I would guess. And, you know, there's, there's, and it, it's been, it's been weird. Like, you know, like it's a weird feeling as some of this, you know, you're parsing through trying to figure out the different paths to, you know, what the recoveries might be. It's very opaque. It's tons of conjecture. You know, it's like there was balance sheets that were sent around of the venture capital portfolio. You're sitting there looking at the venture capital portfolio going, okay, what do we, like if you liquidated this thing, you know, a year from now, like, what do you, what do you think, what kind of value could you get out of this? It's, 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 it's a lot of conjecture, but 
you know, especially with this news that came out a couple days ago, like, I mean, there are paths to like 75, 85 cents on the dollar recovery, and then it could drag out, you know, two years, three years, four years, five years. And it's like this weird feeling to think that like five years from now, I get like 85 cents on the dollar back. Like, that's just like a weird, I don't know. It just feels weird. Yeah. And I guess also, therefore, there's a trade-off between... I mean, Ikigai's st are still a going concern, right? For now. For now. Yeah, it's up in the air, but yeah. Like, if there was a chance, say, I don't know, say the claims market was offering 50 cents on the dollar, you would have a scenario as like, do we wait or do we recover that? that right. Keep, I guess some of your investors might withdraw, but that f that would give you something to trade through what may be a potential rise in the market price over the years. Right. I guess are these are things you're kind of weighing up. Uh, yeah, that, yeah, that's definitely one factor. Um, you know, the investor base has been, you know, I would say meaningfully more supportive than expected given the circumstances. Okay. Um, very little anger and zero vitriol. Like not, a, we got 300 LPs and not a single one has like been ugly. I mean, people aren't happy. Obviously people are disappointed. People are asking questions about why would you keep so many assets on an exchange like that? But over, uh, like the large majority have been very supportive, want us to keep going. We're not accepting new subscriptions into the fund right now. If we were, we could raise, you know, some meaningful amount of money in fresh capital if we wanted to do that. Why aren't you? Is it wrong, the wrong time? You know, when, when something this big happens in life uh you just want to pause and get a sense of your bearings and reevaluate you know it's a, it's just a it is a season of reevaluating things that are foundational in your life um and i've been doing that for sure and i don't know what the exact outcomes of that are going to be and it, it essentially for me looks like a a series of decision trees and the the top of the decision tree is do i want to stay in crypto yes or no if yes don't want to keep managing other people's money yes or no if yes do i want to do that standalone like at ikigai or do i want to go join another organization and there's opportunities like that out there um if I want to keep managing other people's money, do I want to manage it in the same way I have been managing it? Or do I want to manage it, you know, appro approach the market with some different kind of strategy, some kind of different investment process? And then if you kind of run back up that decision tree, if I want to stay in crypto and I don't want to manage other people's money, or at least maybe not right now, well, then what would you do in crypto? What would I, what would I do in crypto? And I think most of those things are still on the table. I, I think I want to stay in crypto. Um, I still believe that this is a fight worth fighting. I still believe that this technology has the potential to make the world a better place. And it's really all just potential at this point. If you look at the entirety of the, of the history of crypto and the good that's been done over that entirety, and then you back out all the damage that's been done, you know, the net net to me is probably marginally positive. And, you know, we could argue about that, but 
my view is it's like marginally positive the entirety of what crypto's done over its history minus the damage so at this point you're really just still sitting on a lot of potential to make the world a better place and whether or not this technology delivers on all of or some of or none of its potential to make the world a better place is entirely dependent on the individuals that are working towards those various outcomes and that's i use this term fight worth fighting that's a fight worth fighting to me um and i think i want to stay in it but i feel pretty convicted that i need to fight the fight differently than i have been doing it i know what people listening gonna say because it's a bitcoin show right right they're gonna say the reason it's marginally net positive is bitcoin bringing it up and that is all the, the crypto shit that's bringing it down like i would argue the ftx situation was uh an evidence case for why bitcoin is important in that they had they didn't have any in the end and it is crypto which is the damaging part in that what they essentially did is they kind of ran an ico they pumped up a token then they leveraged that token to borrow and trade and that is that is part of the contagion that's been around a lot of these failures it's not to say the contagion isn't part to do with people leveraging bitcoin as well and rehypothecating it but i would i would expect people listening would be like travis it's the crypto shit that's ruining this that's what i expect the response to be yeah i don't disagree with anything that you just said um i still believe in use cases for this technology outside of uh, you know a non-sovereign hard cap supply global immutable decentralized digital store value I still believe in use cases outside of that. I still think that abuses of power of centralized tech companies are causing societal problems. And I still believe that technology and humanity are set to become further intertwined in the coming years and decades. And that that looks like a setup for those societal problems to be exacerbated from here. And I still believe in the potential for decentralization to um, alleviate some of those problems. And, and I think that, that, those solutions would be delivered, uh, you know, you know, in a, in a decentralized technology outside of Bitcoin. Um, still believe that metaverse is is uh, is um, is coming for for humanity. We can argue about the pace of that, but you know, Apple's got these these goggles that are coming out pretty soon, and like I don't know when's the last time Apple whiffed on a big product. I don't know, right? Mm. Um, and I still believe that there's the potential for decentralized technology to try and wrestle some of the power that would obviously come along with centralized tech companies having complete control over, you know, that direction that, that human humans and technology look like they're, they're heading towards. So yeah, I believe in those things, but, but that, that's not to say that, um, you know, the, 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 the shit coining that was present, uh, you know, was not a, a major driver of, um, of the, you know, all of the damage that was done in, in 2022. I think it's a combination of the shit coining and the irresponsible lending, borrowing and leverage. And Travis, this is something we've had to face and well, more so me, but we, you know, we've had to face BlockFi. One of our sponsors yeah. is gone. And I told I told people I was using it. We had adverts for them for four years and people who listen to our show use BlockFi and they've lost their assets. Yeah. Uh, 
Compass Mining, a response of ours, didn't deliver on their promises to a number of customers on the ASICs they bought. And they weren't mining during the ball time, and some have been delivered very late. Mm-hmm. There, you know, there is an issue currently between Gemini and Genesis, although I'm more sympathetic to Gemini than in Genesis in this scenario. But like we, we've we've had to we've had to weigh up how we operate this business. The podcast is a business with six employees. We've had to weigh that up and and deal with you know it's not this it, it's similar. It's not the same, but. You know, you have people who have asked you to manage their money. It's mm-hmm. gone. We've we know because of what we've done. We've and it weighs on us heavily. Um, but it's a different scenario for you. And I, I kind of want to r- really understand, like emotionally, what have you been through? Like, how rough has it been? How rough was that first day, week? Yeah, I got. I actually got a really. Uh, I got a really nice one-two punch there because uh, my mom got real sick. Okay. Right around the FTX deal. Uh, yeah, my mom went into the hospital November 9th. And from November 9th to December 23rd, which is, you know, like 45 days, she was in the hospital for like 35 out of those 45 days. Okay. And was was real sick there for a while. She's doing a lot better. Uh, and, and God willing, she's going to be fine and make a complete recovery. But, uh, you know, I was dealing with both of those things at the same time. And really, when my mom was... was um, like it, it, she had a procedure and then had multiple complications that, as knock on effects from this procedure that she had to have, which was an emergency procedure to start with. And like, so over that kind of six week or so period of time, it kind of ebbed and flowed of, um, she'd be in bad shape. She'd get a little bit better. There'd be a complication. It'd be really scary. She'd get a little bit better. There'd be a comp, you know, and it, it was like that. And during periods of time when she was really sick, I had like, uh, you know, like zero ability to have deep thought or to my attention span was like non-existent. Like I just couldn't do anything much with work. So you're an autopilot for your mom priority. Yeah. And in some ways that became a protective layer for overthinking work. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I mean, it just, I think the work stuff just was like extremely one foot in front of the other. Right. Like, like that's it. One day at a time, one foot in front of the other. Um, and you know, as, as, as over the last couple of weeks, as, as my mom's gotten a lot better, um, it's been easier for me to get some brain space back to think more deeply about like, you know, what do I want to do, uh, you know, going forward, what do I want to do with, with Ikigai? Um, you know, just the, that series of decision trees, uh, that I, I was talking about. And like I said, I still haven't come to any exact conclusions, but I, I'm, I'm pretty convicted I want to stay in crypto and I'm pretty convicted that if if I keep managing other people's money I've got to do it differently than the way that I was doing it. Um because the way I was doing it was taking up an incredible amount of hours, brain space, emotional energy. You know, I was I was figuring out how to outperform the market by trading the market. Uh, which is, it's just fucking hard to do, man. And, uh, you know, I'm not smart enough to figure out how to do it any other way other than to pour an unbelievable amount of hours into it. And I've said this plenty of times publicly, like being a portfolio manager at 0.72 is like cupcakes and rainbows compared to this job. It is like a walk in the park compared to this job. It's a hard job. And I, 
was also trying to be a good actor in the space while I was doing that. And I was trying to warn people about all the different risks that were in place. And, you know, we, we made sure to not play the kind of VC, VC, you know, dump on retail game and, um, you know, tried to not participate in just like ridiculous vaporware bullshit type of stuff. But I, I still feel convicted that I was not doing enough. And I just didn't have the time and the brain space and the emotional energy to like fight a better fight. And I, you know, I look at a guy, you know, I think Nick Carter is a great example of a guy that is able to run this venture fund and still be out there in the trenches, like calling out bad actors and using his voice to try and pull this, this technology towards its potential. And like, I'm convicted that if I stay in this space, that I have to do more of that. And that I can't spend so much of my just raw hours, brain space, emotional energy, grinding out outperformance. Yeah, because yeah, venture investment, because you know Nick Nick's company is a venture investment. That's firm. right. Yeah. So, you know, so that's he he gets to use his time differently from somebody totally. trying to outperform the market. Um, and like I know how hard you work, so I've known you for a long time. I know those hours you sit in front of the screen. Yeah, yeah. But like. I guess you're questioning, is that worth it? Yeah, just, um, I just don't really give a shit about trying to stack as many dollars as I can in my bank account. I don't care. I just don't care. Um, it's, it's nice to have money enough to take care of yourself. If you've got a family, take care of your family. But beyond that, like, you know, we're here for a blink of an eye on this earth and then we're gone to something else and like you can't take it with you and it's not going to make you happy. And if I fast forwarded five years from now, 10 years from now, it's still my pretty high conviction base case that all this stuff's going to be worth a lot more five years from now, 10 years from now than it is right now. But if there's a real possibility that you fast forward five years, 10 years from now, it's all worth a lot more. I've got a bunch of dollars in my bank account. Uh, and uh, this technology has delivered on, you know, very little or none of its potential to make the world a better place. And that'd be so fucking disappointing. That'd be, I just couldn't, I'm not, I'm like not going to do it. I'm going to, I refuse to do that. I mean, my net wealth during the five, six years I've been doing this has been a roller coaster. And the thing that's always stood out to me is that the cliche money doesn't make you happy. Look, being broke can, can make you sad. Yeah. Absolutely. If you can't get your next rent check, if you can't, like, I know people who can't heat their homes at the moment, like, being broke sucks. Uh, and I always think you're, if you can cover your base, you can afford to pay your bills, you can have a holiday, like a nice life. You, yeah. afford, you know, you can go to the supermarket and buy your whatever food, your groceries you need without thinking about it. Like, you're good there. Beyond that, those chunks that you think you want, like the house, the car, they're a they're a temporary blip of happiness. Yeah, but they just change. They just they just change the benchmark of your of where you are. Yeah. Ultimately, it's not fulfilling. And and I know this because like it's not the same as you. In 2017, I I wasn't I didn't have a lot of money, and I turned thirty two thousand into like over a million dollars, and then back down to two hundred thousand. And through all that period, I know the wealthiest I was was my most miserable. And like the brokest wasn't my most resort. It was a bit shit, 
but I knew the money never made a difference because you the money can't avoid all the other shit going on in, in your life and yeah. in your head. Yeah. And I know that. And yeah. It doesn't mean I'm not going to go out there and try and earn money, but I, you know, we, we're in this business of this scarce asset. I'm always reminding myself I've got a scarce asset, which is time. Yeah. Yeah. I c- yeah. Com- completely agree with that. And I, and I, yeah. And so I, I've been, I've been pretty convicted on that over the last couple months. And so if I, if I do keep managing other people's money, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be in a manner that will give me more of my brain space and emotional energy back that I can then go try and just be louder in this ecosystem and just, and just have a voice, have a platform and do whatever I can to try and, to try and push this, this stuff in, in the right direction. And there's, there's different ways to slice that pie. I mean, we have, we have a, a, you know, there's a lot of quantitative research that we've done that was a big part of our investment process. And we could just decide to just take all the AUM that we have and hook it up entirely to um, automated execution algorithms that are hooked up to proprietary statistical models and just ride with the with the models and not have any of Travis's discretion involved in it. And like investors will either ride with that or they won't and it'll make money or it won't. But you know, historically, you know, it's that part of it is done really well. Where's the joy in that? It doesn't feel fulfilling. Well, well, the point of that would be, um, it would give me a lot of my brain space back right, and okay. a lot of my emotional energy back. For me, Ikigai was building an, an asset management business in this space was always, my goal for it was to, for it to be a platform so that we could go try and do good in the world and do good in the space is literally why we named it ikigai and i'm pretty sure the first time i ever came on this podcast i said you know ikigai what you're good at what you like to do what the world needs and what you deserve to be paid for i had a career in hedge fund investing i was pretty good at it i like doing it i made a fine living doing it the world does not need another portfolio manager the world doesn't need another hedge fund if the world doesn't get another hedge fund the world's gonna be just fine i've probably said that 500 times and, you know, I think it's hitting differently today after all this than it has been. And I think that there was an aspect of, of uh, me feeling out of alignment in spending so much of my, out of alignment with my purpose, spending so much time grinding out performance and not doing enough things that would have a more positive lasting impact. And I'm just not going to do that anymore. And if that means that I'm not going to manage other people's money, uh, that's okay. And maybe I'll start a research product. Um, you know, I've got this monthly update letter that goes out to, I don't know, 6,000 more over 6,000 people. Um, could like, you know, move that to Substack. see how many people want to pay five bucks a month for that thing could build other kind of research around that. Um, could we have like, we've done an incredible amount of qualitative research on this space. Uh, you know, you could, you know, pretty easily create a product out of the kind of crypto qualitative research efforts that we've done and can continue to do. And then we have a great quantitative research, um, you know, body of work 
that's been built over four years um, and you could potentially sell the signal to that. And then people have been telling me to do my own podcast for years. People, I mean, you've been telling me to do that for a lot, lot of people. I've had multiple offers from podcast networks that have sponsorships lined up that said they'll do all their legwork for me. And like, you know, I've never had the, the, the emotional energy and the brain space to do that. Cause I've been sitting there grinding out performance. But now when you look at the state of this ecosystem, like, it's like, okay, well, we got to do something else now. Travis has got to do something else now because like the, the bad guys are kicking the shit out of the good guys. Look at what just happened. This shit is in shambles right now. And we have the space has this attack vector from intelligent sociopaths and they've done so much damage at this point. And that was true in 2022, but it's also true. If you look back at prior cycles, like it's like, you can ramble off the names of 2022, Sam Bankman fried, the Alameda folks, Do Kwan, Sue and Kyle, Alex Mashinsky. You know, you can, you can ramble off a lot of these, these sociopaths, but then you can go back prior cycles and you can add another 20 names to that list. And, and Mt. Gox and FTX, they're not exactly the same, but they're quite similar. And Gox was a fucking decade ago, man. Yeah. We're shooting ourselves in the foot with the same bullet that we shot ourselves in the foot with a decade ago. If you fast forward a decade from now and we're shooting ourselves in the foot with the same fucking bullet, that's a terrible outcome. This show is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. Now, one of the most regular emails I receive is people asking how to break into the industry, and Fidelity Investments reach out to me as they are looking to recruit hundreds of digitally native associates to their team to help shape the future of money. Now, Fidelity Investments is a diversified financial services provider with more than $7.2 trillion in client assets under administration and over 1.3 million trades each day. And they have also been pioneers in the Bitcoin mining and asset management space. Now, they started in Bitcoin back in 2014 when they entered the mining space and have continued to grow their team and services ever since. And their in-house fintech incubator is where the teams come up with innovative solutions to bridge the worlds of traditional finance and decentralization. Now, you have the chance to join them and directly impact how they deliver financial services to their customers. And they provide the resources, training, and development to make you successful in this emerging industry. Now, if you want to learn more about this, then please head over to crypto.fidelitycareers.com. That is crypto.fidelitycareers.com. Next up, it's my new sponsor, Wasabi, who I will now be using to make sure I keep my Bitcoin private. With the release of Wasabi 2.0, privacy is now effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Now, rather than having to choose to coin join, this can be done automatically, so you just have to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement, which you know, that's always something I care about. Now, you do get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you don't leak your IP address. There is also no more minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount, and there is no change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Now, privacy is something I am definitely taking more seriously, and with the recently released Wasabi 2.0, this becomes so much easier. Now, if you do want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. 
Also, today we have Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. But whilst we're at the bottom of a bear market, I'm only buying. We're hodlers, right? We hodl through this. Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips all through this, and I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy. And Gemini have invested in building leading industry security since day one. Gemini are also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade over $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. I, I don't disagree. I see those situations slightly differently. I th- I think the things that have started to happen are bigger and worse because this technology has expanded. We've got more people in this world. So more people means more money, which means the damaging things that happen can be... Well, I mean, relative to the space, Mt. Gox could be as damaging as what happened this year. But, you know, I did a whole six, I think, six series, six show investigating into Mt. Gox. I think Mark Hart Palace, I don't think... I think he was somebody massively out of his depth. He was sold something that was possibly already uh, insolvent. And through naivety and and uh, incompetence and a lack of previous knowledge in the industry, like we didn't have the case studies previously, he got hacked, you know. Whereas I think what happened, say, with FTX is a little bit more dishonest and sinister. You know, I've sat with Car Palace. I've interviewed him. I don't think he sat there knowingly losing people's funds. Who I, did Willie Bot? I don't know. It's not so people don't really know, actually, huh? No, okay. I don't know if we ever ever got to the bottom of that. Because the back door of FTX and Willie Bot, like they're not the exact same thing, but they're like next door neighbors. Yeah, I, whereas. You know, I also think that Sam Sam was just also incompetent out of his depth. I mean, you're giving somebody without any experience, you know, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars of capital to invest and manage. Like, where is the competent team around him advising and guiding him? When, you know, I, I know they took that $200 million investment, but my expectation has always been with... Uh, Silicon Valley is when when somebody's making a nine-figure investment, they put somebody on the board, you have advisors. You know, I struggle to scale a podcast (laughs) where our revenues, you know, are like a, like a, a, they're like a dot of sand on a beach compared to what they had. How can, how can somebody who has not had the experience of managing the safety of that money and the investment of that money know what they're doing? And so there is incompetence from him and there is incompetence from what happened with Mark Carl Palace, but you can wrap around that incompetence, the crazy leverage trading, the dishonest investments from, or well, 3AC, you can wrap into that, the, uh, you know, reckless trade. Like, I think what happened this year is, is, is more sinister and more dangerous because yeah. the numbers are bigger. Yeah, it's yeah, it's hard to decide whether or not Gox or FTX were, was more damaging, you know, on a like relative basis, right? I mean, the, the well, cri- Gox could have ended everything, right? Yeah, right. Um, 
you know, the crypto ecosystem lost $1.4 trillion in market cap last year. So that's obviously never happened before. I mean, that, that that's a fact, that's a, a function of size. Right. You know, the percentage drawdowns seem to always be very similar. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. That is true. Um, yeah. And I, and I think with Sam, I mean, people thought the guy was a savant. I mean, and, and, and you looked at his background and you looked at him and like, you know, the space puts like, you know, Aspie people up on this pedestal and you're like, okay, this is a guy, MIT, uh, went to Jane street, um, started this crypto quant fund, the crypto quant fund crushed it. And then he launched an exchange and it was a great exchange. And like people fell in love with the story and, 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 and crypto, you know, I think humanity in general, we look for heroes, um, but crypto specifically, we've got this 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 thing that we do where we look for our heroes and then put them on the pedestal and then like ignore uh, their shortcomings or like misjudge the character of our heroes. And it's just like, it seems like it's happened so many times. And the entire concept of trust you know i think has to be re-architected in crypto um at this point you you look at you know it's 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 so ironic right that it's like what what blew up crypto this year was the trusted third-party middlemen like the exact thing that all of this shit was designed to ameliorate and you're sitting there going okay we we can't keep doing this and it seems like you've got to me it seems like you got three options of like how do you solve well before we get into your options i, I do want to push back on that because i think that is a crypto problem and not a bitcoin problem and let me explain it yeah bitcoiners don't trust verify anyone who seems to make any career for themselves in bitcoin you know, they get hammered, they get pushed, they get tested. I've been on the receiving end, and rightly so for some of it, of you know, opinions, guests, sponsors, like they hammer, they push, they push, they push. And I see it more, the hero making happening more in crypto on the people who maybe launch, who become like cult heroes. I mean, look, Richard Hart is a cult hero. Yeah. Hex, he's a cult yeah. hero. He's wandering around the most ridiculous clothes, showing off his watches and cars, you know, arguably a lot of people will have lost a lot of money in hex because they've locked their shit up for 15 years we create these cult heroes or you know crypto people and i think it comes from a separate mission i think there is this mission in bitcoin which is to create good money the best money for the world you know something that cannot be seized that you know is censorship resistant that is used you know not only for individuals you and i to invest and store our money but also it is used for humanitarian needs. It's used for activists. And so I think that desire to build the best money has created this kind of ethos where you know, the toxic maxis, they do push back and, and they create this kind of atmosphere of, you know, you need to be a good actor. And I think the ethos of crypto is a little bit more kind of like venture. It's like, what can we launch? What, where can we make money? How can we make money? There's less talk about the use cases of the best money that and and I think because of that it it has this more kind of reckless nature to it and the less of the don't trust verify I I would agree with that yeah yeah wouldn't push the, the only thing I would say is like okay Michael Saylor is a bitcoin hero and he was telling people to sell their house to lever long to buy bitcoin at the top of the market 
Yeah, and I think he he has received criticism for, criticism for that. Maybe not enough, but he has received criticism. I I would happily criticize him for that. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about recently who would be the best person to go on Rogan? Who are we going to get to go on and talk about Bitcoin? Firstly, I don't think Rogan gives a shit. I don't think he wants it on his show. But if he did, you know, when people bring up Sailor, I actually don't think he's the best person. Yeah, I wouldn't do that. I, you know, and that's not a, that's not me criticizing Sailor himself. I think he's brought a lot of good to the space. Um, he's just not the right guy. Yeah. The right guy is Alex Gladstein, who approaches Bitcoin from a needs basis. You know, his analysis of the IMF and the World Bank and his criticism of uh, economic imperialism. And then him, you know, work, you know, the Human Rights Foundation, they have they have workshops where activists come in, they teach them, they teach them how to custody and use Bitcoin in a safe, private way. That's the kind of guy who is, for me, is a if you're gonna have any hero in Bitcoin, it's that kind of person who isn't about his personal investment. It is about why this is the best for the world. But I think your criticism of Sailor on that point is fair. And he, I wonder if he'd admit it. I mean, we'll, if we sit, get to sit down with him, I'd ask him. Yeah. And I think Bitcoin does have more individuals, like, quote unquote, fighting the good fight. But then I also think that if you, um, if you talk about Alex Mashinsky and Vitalik in the same breath, you're discrediting your entire stance yeah i know i i would agree with that i mean i've been calling out mashinsky since what, 2019 yeah. i think yeah i mean i think he you know there's like oh mashinsky i've been calling like people are calling like it was obvious back in 2019 yeah. yeah you know um and i agree with you i i think what it is is intentions i think vitalik believes whether you agree with him or not agree with ethereum you know the change in narrative what it whatever your opinion is I, I believe he in himself believes he is doing good. Yeah. And I believe in himself, Mashinsky knew he was taking risks and there's going to be times where he's gone back home and he's going to be laying up in bed thinking, oh, fuck, we're yeah. fucked here. Yeah. We shouldn't have done that. Or he's gone back and thought, thought, I need to save this business. Right. And just made poor decisions. Yeah. I, I know this is like bad for the flow of a podcast, but I want to go back to the thing you were talking about with the sponsors, BlockFi and whatnot. I Please just do. And I just want to say... Uh, I publicly endorsed FTX, um, and, uh, we did the overwhelming majority of our trading activities there and had for a couple of years. And, uh, I told people it was a great place. I told people it was as safe as Coinbase, uh, for them to keep their assets there. And like, I just want to apologize publicly for that. Um, because people would have listened to what I said and people would have lost money because of that. And I'm like that ways that that I'll, I'll carry that with me for the rest of my life. I don't know if you heard our last show we made with Matt O'Dell, and he held my hand to the fire with regards to BlockFi, and he said to me, he said, "Did you make a mistake?" And I and I've like really wrestled with it because I was like, no, because with my information at the time, um, I believe they were you know a legit business. They were regulated. They were responsible. So I said, no. I said, I feel bad for everyone who's lost money, but I don't think I made a mistake. That's why I'm not going to apologize. But by the time I got to the end of the interview, I, was, I actually had to reflect on that and go, oh, hold on a second. Like, I'm not responsible for what happened, but perhaps perhaps I should have seen the signs mm. earlier. Perhaps, you know, the warning signs, well, they were there earlier. Yeah. You know, and Danny, do you think we can 
say, if we were 100% honest, do you think we could say that we would not have had FTX as a sponsor? No, we, we, we probably would have done. In a scenario where, say, Gemini ended, mm-hmm. no other one had come in, and FTX said, look, can we sponsor the show? We of, One, obviously, we would have considered it. Secondly, we would have said to them, we will only promote any of your Bitcoin products, which mm-hmm. is our policy. But I don't think I could... You know, we ended the BlockFi sponsorship four or five months before they uh, they stopped withdrawals. And you know, we have to be 100% honest about that. That ended because, you know, their funds were tight and they couldn't afford the rate anymore. And they said, you know, can we cut the rate? And I said, would you, would you just want to end it? There's every scenario, if I'm 100% honest, BlockFi would have still been a sponsor when they stop withdrawals. Mm-hmm. And so it would be dishonest for me to say, well, it's not our issue. You know, we ended that sponsorship. If FTX had gone in touch and they'd offered us a good rate and they just said, you can just promote the Bitcoin, but there's every chance we would have been. And and so I think we're all reflecting on this. That's a like soul-searching mental exercise to go through because I've been like talking to some folks about maybe starting a podcast and the sponsorship shit. And in the back of my head, I'm like, dude, give me fucking athletic greens and manscapes. At least then I don't have to sit there and be terrified that I'm going to hose thousands of people that are listening to me. Like it had, like, it's like, because like, if this just happened with FTX, it's like, how do you look at any crypto company and be like, Oh, this is like for sure good to go. And I'm not going to torch my listeners on this. And that is, when I say soul searching, it's like the embarrassment and the pain that you feel from that. It makes you sit there and you go, what the fuck am I doing in this shit? Dude? Yeah. What am I sitting here doing here? Yeah. Coinbase are not the most popular exchange with Bitcoiners because they expanded into shit coins and rough fee schedule too. Yeah. And some people argue that uh, Brian Armstrong hasn't always been the rep- best uh, advocate for Bitcoin. He's pushed for things that they disagree with. That's but in true. terms of a, an exchange, if you're going to trust your Bitcoin with anyone, all right, they might be selling your data to certain agencies, but in, in terms of do I think there is a rug there, that's probably the one I trust them, you know, alongside, alongside Kraken and Gemini, I trust the most not to rug your exchange. I do wonder if they just got lucky, though, the SEC didn't let them have a, a product and they might have been caught in this as well. Well, that's a different thing. That's based on the earned thing. Yeah, pro- possibly did. The the interesting thing, and the thing, this is what makes Gensler look even more like a clown, is that Coinbase's yield product, you remember that tweet thread that Brian yeah, Armstrong yeah. put out about talking about how the SEC shut them down when their direct competitors were obviously offering the same product? Um, well, BlockFi and... Jim and I earn were running all this stuff into Genesis. Coinbase's product was actually a blue chip DeFi wrapper. So they they weren't going to go to a centralized borrow lending business. They were going to send it into Aave and Compound and uh, like a couple other blue chip DeFi things, which all of that shit held up through all of this, which is like, that makes you think too, right? And like, you know, I don't know. It makes it makes Gensler look like a like a complete joker. Well, he's looked like a clown for a long time now. He, you know, slow to deal with it. I mean, to to issue action against Genesis and Gemini, Gemini sued after, him yesterday. It's after, so... after the fact, it's like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. Like, wh- why now? It's very very clownish. Well, it seems to me it's like I, I think that is a, an admission that he he's fucked up and he hasn't got control of a space. He's he he claims to be wanting to. Well, he is in a position to control. But yeah, I get it. Look, we um, 
we spoke to a guy that we've been thinking of having somebody helping us with our ad sales, and we were like, "Yeah, I I take a mattress, yeah. <laughs> I, I take Squarespace, I take Athletic Greens, yeah. supplement that with some subscriptions. Maybe we do some bonus content. Uh, it it's too stressful dealing with the potential losses for other people, and and the 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 barrage of I would say fair." criticisms but some overstep the market just becomes really difficult like people saying are you going to pay that money back mm -hmm. you know so that's difficult you know, we, all these things that you're wrestling with we're wrestling with i think a lot of other people are wrestling with yeah if you're you know it's like it's it's likely trusted third-party middlemen that are going to be ones that are paying for sponsorships for podcasts and you know it's not net, that's not absolutely true but that's you know in the large majority of cases that's that's the case and back to my earlier point before we start talking about something else the the unacceptable level of opacity that has been present there uh like the potential solutions there and to talk about the, about the Gensler thing um you got you have you have three options about what to do with like trusted middlemen in crypto. You can say, forget all of it. We're done with it. We're moving the whole thing on chain. Um, no more Coinbase. No more Binance. No, we're not going to deal with that. We're going to do DEXs and borrow lending. We're not going to do centralized borrow lending anymore. We're going to do DeFi protocols. That would be option one. Option two is you allow some trusted third parties to remain. Um, and you regulate them. And look, I'm a libertarian. Like the number of times that you're going to hear the words coming out of my mouth, please regulate something that I'm interested in. Like, I don't know if I've ever said that before ever. Like, it's just not in me. But then the third option is um, self-regulation. And option one, to me, feels like a non-starter for the next couple of years. The world's just not ready for that. Free markets will allow people like it's, if it's a free market. If you want a free market, people are going to create these companies and products over and over again. Yeah, yeah, and the world's just not ready for, you know, certainly not to make light of what happened to to Loop Dash, but it's like that was kind of like I feel like a billboard for like how ready, like how reasonable is it to expect the world to start dealing with private keys? I'm going to push back on that one. Uh, one we did a, uh, an interview with Jameson Lop discussing that. Uh, I think that is, I think that's a red herring for self-custody. Uh, Luke Lasher likely had a setup that he created right at, you know, back in maybe 2010, hasn't updated it. He's somebody who, who openly admitted that, like, security, did not say security isn't his strong point. He's a coder. He's a developer. Look, look, it's his issue, but he's likely created a setup and never changed it. Nobody else is going to be, creating a self-custody setup like him. Right. They're going to likely get a cold card, a ledger, or a Trezor, perhaps a multi-sig. For, for everyone I know who's moved onto a hardware wallet, I know very few stories of people who fucked that up. Right. Very, very few. I, I remember one of the guy got fished because of ledger and he lost some Bitcoin. And I know some people have got um, targeted with the like telephone scam. Yeah. But generally speaking, I don't know anyone who's had a like a bad experience of that. Luke's was, it wasn't like Luke had a multi-sig set up with 
Carter and did something stupid and fucked up. He had such a unique setup that was very old. Yeah, very old. So I think that is a that that is a red herring to compare to 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 say whether people are ready for. This. I think people are ready for this. A hardware wallet isn't that hard. My my dad would struggle, and there will be people who struggle. But you're really you're writing down twenty four words and hiding them. That's all you got to do. Yeah, you've got to if if you get a, a hardware device, you set it up. You write down your 24 words, you transfer 10 bucks to it, you wipe it, you retest those 24 words, and you learn where to hide those safely. Right. That is the that is 95% of what you got to do. The other 5% is like just not like like having that uh, those seed words safely. So if you have a house fire, I think that is I think people people are capable of that. And then if their assets get meaningful, there's Unchained Capital, there's Casa, both very good multi-sig products. Like I've had a great experience with Casa. Yeah, I you know it's geographically distributed. I'm it's, you cannot come to me with a, a five dollar wrench and get it from me, and I managed to manage that very easily. So yeah. I think we're I think things will get better, but I think we're okay there. Okay, well then that would be that's one option is to is to move all of this on chain and say we're not going to do trusted third party middlemen anymore, and we can argue about whether or not the world's ready for that. And, you know, in your view, maybe it is in my view, you know, I don't think it is. And then three self-regulation by itself. Um, we failed so utterly at that, that I don't see any particular logical reason to say you can snap your fingers in January of 2023 and we're just going to make that work. So to me, it feels like some combination of two and three regulation around the trusted middlemen that you allow to remain in the space and then more effective self-regulation which goes back to the point of like good actors being louder having sharper elbows being more adversarial being more acute in criticism being more willing to publicly call out and question the the motives the intentions the actions of all kinds of different, uh, all, all kinds of different actors in the space. I mean, it's so obvious at this point that this ecosystem, like bad actors, come to this ecosystem like a moth to a flame. Like it's like if you're trying to make as much money as possible and you don't give, you don't care at all about who you hurt on the on the way. Where else would you go other than crypto? And like we have to acknowledge that. And then stop pretending like what we the way we have been acting is like sufficient to defend against that because I just I just don't think it is. And like back to my earlier point, I wasn't doing enough. I got to do more. We all got to do more. This show is brought to you by Big Casino. Established in 2013, Big Casino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino, and they are trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. Not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they also have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best Bitcoin casino that you can go to. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly.
Next up, we have Leaden. Now, from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Leaden's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Leaden only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they will re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Leaden is there to support all your needs. And not only a Leaden sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs too. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Leaden.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Also today, we have Ledger. Now, recent events have highlighted just how important self-custody is. And Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. And the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of their Nano S Plus. The larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. And the Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. Now, I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017, before I even started this podcast. And I absolutely love the S Plus. If you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot l-e-d-g-e-r dot com yeah i'm i'm pro-regulation you know people know this by now on certain things you know i'm i'm pro-regulation that we don't have guns in the uk because we as a society are not ready for that and i'm okay with that i'm pro-regulation around who can own uh missiles and and i'm pro-regulation on dangerous explosives i'm pro-regulation on banks because banks custody our money i'm pro-regulation on certain things and i know that's a slippery slope and i think we need a stronger civil society to push back when it goes too far because i'm not pro cbdc's and i won't push back on that right uh i think a certain amount of regulation within bitcoin i'm okay with the regulation around companies who custody assets because they are, I believe they will exist. I think in a free market, you're going to have those companies. So if we are in a regulated market, I will, I'm pro certain regulations to ensure these people are able to prove their reserves. Yeah. I'm, I'm okay with that. And I, I will, I know I'll get pushback on that, but I'm okay with that. That's a scenario I'm okay with. Uh, I don't know what you can do, though, about large amounts of capital coming in to the market and certain players taking very, very risky bets. I don't know if you will ever stop that. Right. It's a tricky one. Yeah. Yeah. What do you, From your perspective, what do you think the, like, you know rebuilding from the ashes over the course of 2023 is going to look like? Interestingly, I'm quite optimistic uh, on the Bitcoin price because I think uh, I think the price was massively suppressed by what went on. Now, I'm not somebody who can analyze markets. You, you maybe will know this better than me. But my gut instinct is the price didn't go as high as it would because we had people selling off large amounts of Bitcoin. We had Luna. They we had to swallow up eighty thousand Bitcoin with that. Well, no, eight thousand or eighty. I can't even remember the number. It was a lot of fucking Bitcoin. Um, I've heard rumors that uh, some of the big funds were trying to suppress the Bitcoin price. I've heard FTX were trying to suppress the Bitcoin price. I don't know if any of this is true, 
But I also feel like the bear market went deeper than we would have because of the amount of forced selling and then the cascade that you know miners then had to sell. You know, I think perhaps we could have gone higher and I perhaps think the low wouldn't have been so low. So because of that, I think I think the price that we sat around for like 16, 16 and a half thousand was like I think it was just the reason it went sideways, I think, for a couple of months like that is because nobody really knew what the fuck was going on. Mm-hmm. Have we got another blow up coming shit so it might go lower? I don't want to buy. But I don't want to sell because I don't want to sell this low. So I'm quite optimistic on price, and I think a, some good price action will be good for the market. What I think was going to be difficult is convincing people to invest in this industry mm-hmm. because some people are going to have lost a lot of money. That's 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 the one area. But that maybe mean we get these more scrappy little startups. You know, people who are working on kind of innovative ideas around the technology, around Bitcoin, the Lightning Network, better wallets. Maybe we don't get these huge Bitcoin crypto companies who want to go through five rounds of fundings and IPO. Maybe, maybe the market doesn't even suit that. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe because this is all we're trying to do is expand the adoption and use of this technology and money, that needs to happen as like grassroots work like I'm doing with a podcast that you might do if you launch a podcast or expand your newsletter. Maybe that's all we need. Right. I I do agree with you that it's one of the things that's been like messing with my head the most is, is you don't really know what happened over the last few years. It's really weird, especially as a guy that stared at the shit for thousands of hours over that period of time. Were there times where it, things weren't happening how you... Like, did you have a gut feel like weird shit was going on? My, the number one way that it, it showed up is like um, in the quantitative research that we do, um, we experienced um, a lot of signal decay, alpha decay. We would like find stuff that would work and have edge in it. And it worked for a little bit and then the edge would just go away and then we'd go, you know, bang our head against the wall for a couple months trying to find some more edge and then come up with some stuff and then it would work for a while. And then, and it's something that Hans and I, um, uh, Hans, it does all the, all the quant research for us. We've, we've talked about it a lot over the last couple months is that it's quite likely that there was a lot of distortion in the quantitative data that came from all of the like reckless lending intertwined with fraud used the heavily lever long to speculate on vaporware and that it was just deeply distorting the signal from all of this quantitative data and that there's a completely logical reason to expect that when you pull you know most or all of that away like what just happened um that what's remaining in in the quantitative data would be a cleaner signal that it would just that like the data would just make more sense in characterizing the bullishness or bearishness of the market and it's it's too early to say right now you just got to get you know i'd say multiple more months down the road before you start to get a sense of like what this like new regime looks like well when ftx didn't have any bitcoin it made me wonder well how much paper bitcoin was being traded on that exchange right right well it was like, like when you get the volume data for FTX, that will tell you how much Bitcoin is being traded. But if that was paper Bitcoin, it never really existed. Yes. What distortion is that adding? Heavily, heavily distorted. Yeah. And the way to think about it is it's the no liquidation agreement that Alameda had, right? Alameda, because like I can lever, I can lever my FTX account long, right? 
and there's uh, margin limits where you lever up to a certain point, like say you lever long, you got a bunch of spot crypto assets as collateral, you, you lever those um, with perpetual swap positions or by buying spot on margin and um, you move into a negative cash, the way they showed it on FTX is like a negative cash balance um, and that was your margin. And people did that all the time. That's the point of the, the exchange. Um, and if you, if you lost too much money relative to your collateral value, then the margin framework would automatically start selling your spot assets to make sure that you didn't get in a hole where you owed the exchange money. And that's how margin, that's how these things work. Well, Alameda had a no liquidation, uh, like, you know, a line of code or whatever, a, a switch that was flipped on their account where they would never get liquidated. And so they just went deeper and deeper into the hole, which will have and many billions of dollars, as we now know, many, many billions of dollars. And having that in place undoubtedly would distort price action, price discovery for sure, without a doubt. So were they just really shit at trading? Their edge went away. You, know, you don't really know. I mean, I think their edge went away. Um, and then I think they, uh, you really don't know. I don't, I really don't want to speculate that right. much. Um, I think, I think if you lose 8 billion, you're going to be pretty shit. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I, it, 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 there's, there's probably a decent chance that it will, the truth will somewhat come out through the bankruptcy process of like, you know, of all the money that went out the door to do venture investments and to buy the Miami Heat Arena and to do all the shit that they did, all the real estate and all the political donations and blah, blah, blah. But how much of it was just like trading losses? Yeah. Mm. And I, th I, th I think what I think what we probably know now is that they lost a lot of money when Luna collapsed and that they were long and that the bid, they were already long and that the bid completely disappeared on FTX. And that they, when the market was crashing with Luna and that they had to step in and be that bid and, you know, probably blew a billion dollar hole in, um, customer assets because they had the no liquidation agreement on their, on their account, uh, buying through that crash. And there was this, there was a, the internal email from, from Sam that came out that, that I think it was from August where he was contemplating, he was like, we, maybe we should just shut down Alameda. Like, it's like, it's not that great of a business anymore. That was from August. That was like months before the collapse because they had already dug themselves into this like big hole and had, you know, wiped, you know, probably all the profits or close to all the profits they had ever made, you know, just over those last couple months. So how big was Luna when it went? Oh, it was huge. It was 8 billion. More than yeah. And, and the stable coin was like 40, I think. Mm. I wonder what, how this all would have played out with no Luna. Because it seems like it's unclear that it, any of this would have happened. Yeah, because it yeah. seems like a lot of people were piling into the Luna trade big time, and then it unwound. Yeah, I mean that unwound in what days? There was there was there was um there was so much supply that came to there. There was so much supply of crypto and dollars that came into the borrow lending market that wanted the yield. And the supply completely overwhelmed the demand. 
And what normally happens in that case is that the interest rates would move down massively. Hmm. But for competitive reasons, the centralized bar lending firms tried to keep their interest rates higher than the market dictated so that they could keep customer assets because everybody had this like grow at all costs type of mentality. And people, you know, it's like Alex Mashinsky was willing to do whatever right? He's not going to lower his interest rates. He's got this like, you know, Celsius token that's, you know, whatever. So like that setup that put in place made it where everybody was trying to find um, anywhere to park crypto assets to earn any kind of yield. And Anchor on Luna showed up and they had a 20% interest rate and people just decided to kind of ignore all of the risks associated with that because they needed some of their capital to be earning the 20% because they couldn't get half that anywhere else. And that's where you get into these situations and like, you know, I don't know how much you follow Suzu on Twitter and like, don't get me wrong, fuck Suzu for sure. But like, uh, he's talked about this where like at the peak of the market, he could get like a billion dollars, a billion dollar loan to him uncollateralized just like that's insane yeah right? because he is like if you're willing to pay the interest on it we'll give you a billion dollars completely uncollateralized I, it was, like, sorry it was 60 billion between the two between yeah yeah luna and the, and the stable coin crazy yeah. yeah um yeah suzu i mean sociopath yeah he seems to seems to have got away with it at the moment hiding out <laughs> Yeah, all this extradition stuff, who knows? I mean, there's like all these places you probably can never go again, but... Yeah. Um, we seem to learn a big lesson every cycle. It's like the evolution of Bitcoin, right? You know, we're going to teach you about not your keys, not your Bitcoin. We had that with um, uh, Mt. Gox, and then we're going to teach you about ICOs. And it didn't stick, though. I, th- I think it did for a lot. I think it did for a lot, and then complacency set in. Yeah. I mean, I was complacent. Yeah, there was a time... I, there's a time where I had meaningful amounts of Bitcoin on exchanges or with BlockFi or various places. It's, you know, I was complacent for right. sure. I, Same, I, obviously. I would say right now, I'm probably a little bit complacent with my self custody in terms of I haven't done a full check in like three years. Like I need to recheck my seed words that, that you know, everything. I just need to do that. I think complacency is that. But I think what we've learned in this cycle is. Leverage is dangerous and trusted dangerous. I think there's, there's a constant lesson. We have an issue though, is that like we might have learned them, but the new people coming in haven't learned them, and they might be dismissive of of the things we're trying to tell them because we've experienced it. But until you experience it, you know, I I had to experience massive trading losses to to realize I'm never trading again. Right. And I yeah, I don't know the answer to it. Did um. You know when you put your thread out, which, by the way, is probably the most viral thing you've ever put out, Yeah, sadly. Um, Seven million impressions. Wow. Yeah. It, uh, there was a lot of sympathy in there, um, but there was also a lot of criticism. I've got to ask you about that. You know, There was criticism in the counterparty risk that you took. How do you now reflect on that? The criticism itself I'm cool with. Yeah, I don't know. I, um, I don't know. I'm a grown man. And if people want to talk shit on Twitter to me for whatever reason, that's fine. I mean, I, I engage with, you know, essentially zero of it. You know, I think. But is it valid? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean, there was there was a unique reason why we had that many assets. I had just sold a bunch of of crypto down into cash, and I was just about to buy back again, and it was all mar market dictated type of stuff. So it just so happened to, to get caught with a ton of our assets on on the exchange, um, and it's a trading business. I mean, we it, and our investors completely knew that. I mean, we swing. You know, we would. You know, you go from 100% cash to 50% cash to 0% cash, you know, that happens like, you know, in a day or in a couple days, you know, or in a couple hours. And so it's just a business where you're going to have at times a lot of assets on exchange. You know, obviously I wish I'd have been quicker on the trigger, of course, to pull stuff off. Um, but if you're going to run, I, I mean, this is something that, that we've definitely been contemplating is like if, if I keep managing other people's money, in what manner do you do that? Can you have multiple exchange accounts distribute the risk? You can, but I didn't really, I didn't really, well, part of the reason was because <laughs> we did so much volume on FTX and we held a decent amount of the FTT token that we essentially traded for free. You got, you got discounted trading fees holding FTT and you got volume discounts. And so we would pay a very small amount for Taker. We actually made a little money on Maker and it would net out where we would just have like a rounding error amount of trading fees every month, which that all flows back to our investors. So you tell investors like we do all of our trading on FTX and because of that, we like have to pay no trading fees. Investors are like, oh, that's, that's a good deal. But, um, but do they read that as a good deal? Cause they see the upside but they maybe aren't the ones who are contemplating the counterparty risk. Yeah. I, I, and by I, the way, just, just to say, I had zero idea that FTX would ever be in trouble. I thought they were this cycle's uh, success story. Right. I saw them sponsor a stadium. I saw Giselle and Tom Brady posters up. I saw the ads. I was like, huh, they've killed it. Yes. Like, I, I didn't see the inner workings. I think some people did, but it was very, very few. Yeah. I think we all... I think it was a surprise to everyone. Yeah, no, and 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 obviously to us as well too. Um, and I think for a lot of it, I thought of it as like diversification, where it was like, um, not in the case of Coinbase, but it's just the the Coinbase spot markets were just not nearly as liquid as FTX. Like we could just get on and off size like much easier in FTX than we could in Coinbase and pay way less fees while we were doing it. And um, another thing that I think lulled up me into complacency in that moment was that when the 3AC stuff started happening in June, we pulled all of our uh, assets off rapidly, you know, like high, you know, eight figures type of assets off of the exchange, um, like in 20 minutes. And it all went through like immediately. And so you're like, okay, well, that worked fine then. And so the and, and and you know that 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 was something that that was there was a factor in that moment as well too. When you're taking that kind of money off an exchange, is there any process that's different to if it's like a few thousand dollars or whatever? No, you need to have you need to have your limits up, but like uh, but it, we no, have big limits. There's so. nothing else you have to go like no other process you have to go through. No, yeah. Hmm. And and when you are, I don't know if you can answer this. When you are managing that kind of volume, and you're taking it off. Are you taking it off into a multi-sig? Is that how it works? 
Coinbase custody and the cash we would keep in the bank. Okay. Yeah. So there's like the Silvergate Enterprise Network. Have you heard of that? Yeah. Yeah. Although now we like, we pulled all of our, the cash that we have left, we like pulled it out of Silvergate because we're like terrified of Silvergate now, which is that is like such a weird thing as well, too, where you're like, this space nukes so hard that you like can't trust like a straight up bank, like a regular ass bank because Silvergate is like, you know, I don't know what kind of trouble they're in, but you know. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been to Silvergate. It's really, it's a really interesting place because they support a large part of this ecosystem. And then you turn up and you feel like you're in a old bank, mm. like an old, and Alan Lane's a very traditional yeah. bank manager. Yeah. Uh, I believe he's a good actor and I believe they've been caught out. Yeah. Um, I don't know what mistakes they've made. So I haven't spoken to him about it, but like, he's a good guy. Yeah. And I believe they brought a lot of positivity to the space by solving the banking issue. But, you know, even, and I think this is this wider contagion. You know, people are very anti-regulation, but, like, I'm pro-regulation of the banking sector following 2008. Yeah. You know, I think the regulations they put in place have been helpful. I still think the whole sector's fucked. But, like, it's made it slightly better. You know, we do have... a as Bitcoin and even crypto, because even as a Bitcoin, I can be as maxi as I want. I can't pretend crypto doesn't exist. And I can't pretend these industries like Bitcoin and crypto aren't as industries commingled together. I can't pretend that doesn't happen. So I have to be aware of why the thing, you know, we had a you know multi-trillion dollar market nuked down. What about in four years if it's 10 trillion? What if it goes from 10 trillion to 2 trillion? Uh, that side of thing, I'm that mildly worries me. Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on why it nukes. If maybe, it, maybe it just nukes because fear and greed, the, you know, just a natural market cycle. Right. Even, you know, because we know how this works. Even you forget all these industries and leverage, and the Bitcoin price starts to go up, my phone starts ringing. Yeah. It won't ring at 20,000, won't ring at 25,000. But maybe 30, 35, and it's on the BBC, it's on Sky News, and my friends will be like, is it a good time to buy? Yeah. And I'll be like, it was two months ago, yeah. you know, and they'll put a little bit of money in, and then other people will, and then you just get that, you Re get that reflexivity. cycle. Yeah, and so it shoots up, and then at some point it can't go up anymore, and it comes back down. That's It's an inelastic asset. Yeah. I still think you can get these market cycles even without, even without having nefarious actors causing the market to nuke. Yeah. And I still wrestle with what that actually means. Yeah. You know, if you had a $10 trillion market that, you know, came down to two, three trillion, right. how many people are affected? How many people have taken savings and put it in? And, you know, when the Bitcoin price is at a hundred thousand and it's gone to one twenty and back down, I, I think I wrestle with that a lot. Yeah. Uh, but I think you also can't lose sight that if the fed hadn't have raised rates in 2022, none of this shit would have happened. It all would, it, all, it really, it all would have gotten painted over. Like it just, you wouldn't have had flows coming out of the market that like, you know, it's, you know, that like whatever pulled the tide back to see who wasn't wearing any shorts or whatever Warren Buffett said, right? Yeah, and perhaps Barry would have been able to go out to the market and borrow a couple yeah. of billion and yeah. hide their losses. Yeah, like they're, they're just, they're, you would have the, like the froth, enough froth would have stayed in the crypto market that you just wouldn't have uncovered all of this stuff. What was it you were saying about Bitcoin as an inflation earlier? <laughs> well, was, a, a year ago, 18 months ago, everyone was like cheering inflation numbers coming out high because it was a Bitcoin hedge and now we're cheering inflation numbers coming out low. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. it's a Bitcoin 
Bitcoin's sick. Yeah. I mean, I don't think you could ever find me publicly saying Bitcoin is a good infl- like CPI inflation hedge. Yeah. But you can find me. I, I, I think said, you can find me saying it. <laughs> but a bunch of times I've said Bitcoin loves QE and detests QT. I've been saying that for like years and years. And that was, you know, I think that's very much was on display over, over the last year. And, you know, I don't think there's any particular reason to think that, that that setup has changed. Now, that the reflexivity that you were talking about, when you remove most or all of the, um, you know, reckless lending intertwined with massive fraud used to heavily lever long to speculate on vaporware, when you remove most or all of that, um, you don't know how reflexivity is going to act going yep. forward because it's it was obviously such a crucial part of reflexivity. And so trying... But we, but we have seen it historically. If you look at the Bitcoin chart, you know, that did happen back in... I mean, what's the first... Oh, yeah, but the total market cap is so much smaller that you're just like talking about like a, an asset that small can just move a lot differently. Yeah, of course. Um, and yeah, no, I, I accept that over time the volatility will decrease, but I still think it'll. I still think it will happen. I just think you have these hype cycles. I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with that. The magnitude, I'm not sure. Can you dig out that James Lavish tweet from yesterday? I yeah. kind of want your perspective on this, um, because I know you can't avoid. Are you still trading? Or are you on pause? Uh, not much. A little bit, but no, yeah, not much. So, do you know James Lavish? The name sounds familiar. Yeah, interesting guy. Um, oh, yeah. So my CPI analysis, if you think the Fed is ready to stop raising rates because gas and used car prices are lower, you're out of your mind. Yeah, I agree with that. So you think they're going to continue to raise? A few more times. How high do you think we go? F- probably five and a half. And so do you think it swings back the other way? In that, do you think we could have negative inflation numbers? Uh, I don't have, I don't know. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't. I don't have a view on that. Um... No, I think they'll probably raise it to five and a half or so and then try and keep it up there for a while. And, uh, you know, they want to see the labor market um, loosen up meaningfully. Powell's been very clear about that. And I think if stocks keep like, you know, I don't know, NASDAQ's up three and a half percent this year or something like that. And like if if people are going risk on and financial conditions are easing, uh, Jerome Powell is going to like jawbone that back down because that's not what he wants what does he want uh he wants inflation numbers down he wants the labor market to slack up a lot and he wants to make absolutely sure that there's not a wage price spiral for sure and all of that looks like you know he it's actually incredible how much he has the market by the balls he like he has that the price of every asset on planet earth in a complete headlock it's incredible, actually. Is that because a wage price spiral would also then drive inflation up? Yeah. 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 It's okay. like his worst nightmare. Right. Yeah. And we 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 saw, you know, a lot of early indications of that when we came out of COVID where people could, they couldn't recruit people. Right. Which yeah. is this weird scenario because you've got these mixed signals coming in of, of you know, inflation's high, you know, people can't afford to pay for goods, yet companies can't find people to recruit yeah well, i think you had like six million people leave the workforce during covid and a lot didn't come back that's what i mean yeah, yeah. like a, like I, think, I think the permanent number is six million do we know where they went did they was it people over over early? half of it was just like retired retirement Fuck yeah this amount yeah uh and again yeah maybe like maybe with two you know 
partners both working they made a lifestyle choice to yeah something like that yeah do you think he's got the market by the balls because the policy he's he's implementing is effective or just because asset managers and it's and, effective at affecting the price of assets it's just all, it's <laughs> yeah. just all sentiment yeah like it's just like you know he gets up to the podium and talks hawkish and all asset prices go down and financial conditions tighten and he can like flick his wrist like if things are getting a little ugly things are you know maybe the market's like staring off into the abyss of some kind of crash or something like that potential crash he can get out there and just flick his wrist wrist dovish and everything rips again and then like it's 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 incredible yeah huh. yeah all just sentiment yeah how'd you get out of that um i don't know like some kind of major event right uh you know some kind of I'm over major events. <laughs> Fucking hell. It seems like they happen a lot more often these days, right? Yeah. So like, um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, yeah, we'll see what happens the next time they cut rates, right? Like, um, you know, maybe something happens real bad with Russia and Ukraine and then they cut rates majorly because of that. Um, you know, and, and, you know, oil goes to, $200 a barrel. And then the government is sending out checks to everybody to, you know, cover their gasoline prices mm. like that. I, you know, I'm just saying as a hypothetical, but yeah. Well, I mean, we've mentioned the show a couple of times recently, the uh, UK government has just agreed to subsidize uh, company energy bills because mm -hmm. yeah, energy is so expensive in the UK right mm -hmm. now. Can you take that out? I didn't actually the detail of it. So what now, Travis? I think I'm, you know, I think, you know, got some decisions to make here um, in the coming couple months. I think I'll get some more clarity on that in the next couple months. Um, like I said, I'm confused about what happened in crypto over the last couple of years. And then that makes it hard for me to try and predict like what's gonna happen in crypto. I think in a lot of ways we wasted a cycle's worth of innovation the last couple of years because you didn't have, there was so much distortion in the feedback loop mechanism of a market where it's like, what do people want? What's getting traction? What uh, are people interested in? You know, okay, that's making prices go up. Okay, like is there's those prices going up, is that leading to more interest and more adoption? And looking at that across various different use cases in this asset class, I think all of that was so heavily distorted by reckless lending intertwined with massive fraud, used a heavily lever long to speculate on vaporware, um, that what, like exactly what that's going to look like going forward, I think is, is difficult for me to ascertain. And I think it's just going to take, you know, a couple more months or a few more quarters or all of this year. I mean, it's, it's pretty easy for me to imagine 2023 just being a hangover year in crypto where you're just, there's, there's so many more of these, there's so many more shoes to drop. And I'm not sure how many of the shoes to drop will actually have an immediate effect on prices. Not many of them will like, for example, Gensler sues, Gemini and Genesis yesterday. Well, it didn't do anything to price. In fact, price has been going up over the last few days, right? But um, that is just like, you know, a negative event. There's gonna be a lot of more regulatory stuff to come out. 
the in aggregate, my gut would tell me that the consistent negative headlines of additional shoes to drop is the kind of thing that just keeps large pools of traditional capital out of this space. Um, the ones that got in last cycle with very little exception got smoked. And the ones that didn't get in last cycle feel incredibly vindicated for not getting in. And that type of setup takes like meaningful time to work through the, the two most straightforward ways that I think prices are a lot lower this year would be the Mt. Gox coins, um, which I think are almost assuredly coming this year and TBD on how the market is going to kind of react to that supply coming to market. Um, and then if the GBTC trust gets dissolved and they sell those, all the Bitcoin they hold on the open market, you know, that's pretty straightforward as well too. I don't know how to handicap the likelihood of that. Um, the DCG Gemini earned Genesis thing is, it looks like a complete mess. I mean, it, you know, and it doesn't seem like it, I don't see a path to it getting cleared up anytime relatively soon because it is significantly affected by the proceedings of the FTX bankruptcy. Alameda sent Genesis two and a half billion dollars in August. Well, if they were fraudulent in August, which it's almost assuredly they were, it was a fraud in August, then it's quite likely that that two and a half billion comes back, that the, the FTX bankruptcy claws that back from, from Genesis. It's fucking mess. It's gonna take mess, a dude. That's what I'm saying. Mess. How the fuck do you untangle all of this? It just it just takes time. Yeah. It just takes time. I mean, you know, whatever. Made the, the Madoff. This isn't the same as Madoff for a number of different reasons. You know, whatever. Madoff got like seventy eight cents back on the dollar or something like that. Did you say ninety percent was? Or maybe it was not. Yeah, it, was, it was really high. It was very high. Yeah, it was very high. Um, you know, but it took I don't know eight years or something like that. You know, so these things, you know, I don't know. Um, but it's it's pretty easy for me to imagine 2023 is just like a, you know, a wash more or less for crypto. Yeah. 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 Um, well, I appreciate you coming on telling me this because sometimes I think with something like this, it's easy to hide away because you're just like, you don't want to relive it. You don't want to go through it. But I think there's a lot to learn from it. Um, and uh, whatever you do, I, I wish you luck. And if I can help you, just reach out. You, know, you don't want to see friends go through stuff like this. You know, whatever the reason, it, it sucks, man. So listen, uh, good luck, dude. And oh, yeah. It'll be, it'll be fine. Yeah. It's all, it's all going to work out. Okay. Well, maybe one of the nice things about getting older is like... you've Shut had up, a, man. You're like 10 years younger than me. 37. You've had a couple laps around the block. And you've had bad shit happen and you have had a lot of anxiety around the uncertainty in those moments. And then you've lived enough life that like with the benefit of hindsight, you know, you fast forward a year or two years down the road and you look back at that and you go, oh man, you know, that turned out to be a great thing because it opened up this path for this other thing that never would have happened anyways. And now I'm so happy that this other thing happened. And I've had enough of those happen. I've had enough of things like that happen in my life now that like, even through as shitty as this has been and the anxiety around the uncertainty and, 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 uh, you know, losing my investors, a bunch of money and, you know, my own personal stuff getting caught up and everything like that. Like, it's like, I can, you know, I can still see a path where, um, 
like if I fast forward two years and uh, I'm like, f you know, fighting the fight better than I was, I'm going to be much more in alignment with my purpose and that's just going to feel better. So. All right. Good, man. Well, I mean, I can empathize with that. Well, I got divorced 10 years ago. I like thought my world was imploding and then he ended up getting the best job in the world, making a new best friend and owning my football team. Like this life can do really weird fucking go. things, dude. Uh, but like, good luck. With, good luck with it all. You know, we're friends, we'll stay in touch, and uh, anything I can do to help you, just reach out to me. I appreciate it, brother. All right, man. All right, cheers. Okay, uh, yeah, tough show that one to make. Seeing a friend go through such a difficult situation, kind of what happens doesn't really matter at that time because when somebody's a friend and you know they're hurting, they're going through something very painful, you kind of at some point you put to the back of your mind the difficult questions you want to ask. But at the same time, you know, I wanted Travis on the show. I wanted to ask him about what happened. I wanted to ask him how it made him feel, like the experience he'd gone the experience he's gone through because when something like FTX happens, there's a lot of people it affects. There are people who've lost their funds. There are funds who've lost their funds. There are companies that are affected. And Travis was the person I knew the best who'd been really caught up in this. Um, but I had to, you know, I had to ask him some of the tough questions as well. And I don't know, I don't know what it means now for Travis. I'm sure he'll bounce back and do something cool. Uh, I do hope he finds something out of this. Like when he reflects on this, he finds out what it is he's going to do next and he makes a success of this. I'm sure some other people will have criticism for Travis. Um, that's down to them. Um, but I'm glad I made the show. I'm glad I had a chance to talk to Travis about this. And I do wish him the best for the future. Now, if you have any questions about this or anything else, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Uh, I'm about to go and catch a flight. My uh, latest trip is done. I cannot wait to get home. I cannot wait to see my kids. Also going to see my football team. Really enjoyed making this film, this Follow the Money, uh, this part three that's all about Bitcoin mining and energy. Massive shout out to Neil, who has been working on this very hard, did all the research and the setting up. But to everyone who works on the team, like Ben, Emma, Danny, God, Freddie, Jeremy, everyone who works on it, I, you know, don't always give them the biggest shout out, but they work so hard on this. They're such a great team. I'm very lucky to have them. All right, listen, I will see you all next week. And yeah, I've got some great content for you coming up.